Welcome to the Voices of the Black Folk podcast. I'm your host, Will Anyu. I'm a firm believer that in order to really change how we think and move forward toward our dreams, our goals, and our aspirations, we must surround ourselves around individuals who push us to be better than who we already are. So with that being said, today I have with me my brother, somebody I look up to as a father, somebody I look up to as a great husband, somebody I look up to as someone really changing the way we view our communities, Daryl Lockett. So sit back, tune in and listen, because this is the Voices of Black Folk podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Voices of Black Folk, y'all. I am so excited about this episode. Listen, like Ye said, my big brother was Big's brother. Today I have somebody that we're not related by blood, but in every other way, I look up to this man as a father, as a businessman, as a husband, as an entrepreneur, and just the lessons that he's taught me have just been so phenomenal. So without further ado, Daryl, can you please, please introduce yourself, good brother? I am Daryl Lockett, um, and, and I don't want it to lead with uh, my professional title because like you said, uh, life is much more than what we just do for a paycheck. Uh, but yes, I am a father, uh, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, uh, and, and I, you know, just all around uh, uh, a guy who wants to uplift, you know, the community, mm -hmm. uh, uplift those that I come in contact with and just leave this place, and particularly my race, a little bit uh, further ahead uh, mm -hmm. than where we started in the race, uh, at least when I started running when I arrived on the scene in 1980. Mm -hmm. So uh, by day, yes, I do uh, work as the executive director of the Kennedy King Memorial Initiative in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, but um, you know, that's just how I get a paycheck, uh, and how I corporately make an impact in society. But uh, there's so many other touch points in my life and, and so many other things that I see in my purpose and my being. Fantastic. And so I definitely want to hit on the um, what you do professionally, but, um, you know, on Voices of Black People, we really like to get to know the, the person and the individual. So I guess my first question is, who is Daryl Lockett? Man, um, I am a guy who, uh, who truly, you know, I try and prioritize things, you know, family, family is, is of the utmost importance. And then after family, I think my culture means quite a bit to me. Um, and so, so there are a lot of person who um, is all about, um, you know, leaving a legacy, mm -hmm. um, all about the representation mm -hmm. uh, of myself, my family, my culture. Um, mm -hmm. is all about um, improving lives. Um, okay. I had an interesting sort of uh, upbringing where I was by no means born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I, I was fortunate enough to be blessed on the right side of the tracks. Mm. Uh, you know, certain, um, certain struggles I was insulated from, but I was not in any way shielded or hidden uh, from the realities that so many uh, folks experience in this country and so many folks that look like me. Mm. I am a uh, grandson uh, of, a, of a minister. Uh, I was, some people say I was fortunate not to be the son of a, of a pastor, but I was a grandson of a pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the things that is really you know, stuck with me is, you know, my father was born um, to a family with 12 kids. Mm. My grandfather was uh, a pastor in the Church of God in Christ, and my grandmother was a school teacher. So right there, you know, the two things that were important to them, education and religion. Mm -hmm. And with 12 kids, uh, and this is before the age of mega churches, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. Mm. And in that, my dad, you know, was raised with this mentality that he is no more of a man or less of a man um, from, you know, when he was able to buy certain things now at this point in his life versus when he couldn't buy those things in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, so he doesn't think of himself any differently mm -hmm. and doesn't want to deal with anybody that thinks of him any differently, thinking that he might make you know, X amount of dollars or be, you know, worth something now versus who he knows he grew up as and in the socioeconomic condition that he grew up in. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's no different. Uh, so, you know, I kind of take a little bit of that spirit in, in, into, you know, just my everyday existence that mm -hmm. uh, I am just as you are, one thought, one breath, one action away from making a wrong decision. Mm -hmm. And graveyards and penitentiaries are filled to the brim with those of us who have made one wrong decision. Definitely. So, so, you know, I, I laugh and joke with you and say, 
you know, most all black folk are just a bad dice game away from <laughs> poverty if we aren't already in poverty. Mm -hmm. And now I work in a space where I, I look at the data, I mm -hmm. look at the numbers and say, you know, within particular zip codes, uh, you know, we have one here in Indianapolis where 73% um, of that residents in that zip code are either in poverty or $400 away from poverty. Mm. You know, that's that's the reality that folks are living in. Uh, we are no better or no worse simply because we've been insulated from certain, you know, realities of life. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's upon me for making uh, opportunities for others so that they may, you know, have, you know, the, the resources, the flexibility, the infrastructure of opportunity that was afforded to me mm -hmm. by no doubt of my own. I chose my parents just as much as, you know, the, I had the influence in choosing my parents just as much as you had an influence in choosing your parents. Mm -hmm. So just as much as Prince Harry had the influence in choosing his parents. So it's not necessarily on things that we inherit, but it's incumbent upon us to make sure that it's, um, you know, an active achievement, an active accomplishment that we seek in our lives. Okay. And then how we choose to pass that on to the next generation or those in community with us and around us who we identify with. Interesting. And you mentioned something uh, early that I want to touch on. You said, you know, uh, especially in your household and your father's household, the two things that were important were religion and education. And so really talking about the education piece, you and I are uh, both uh, proud graduates of HBC's Mine's Better Than Yours, but, you know, that's debatable. Um, but... Um, Talk a little bit about that, you know, as somebody that was was brought up with the ideologies of, you know, not only uplifting one's race, but also advancing one's race. What made you what made you make the decision to attend um, the Howard University? Let me give it the respect that it rightfully deserves. Hey, uh, so I hear it all the time. Uh, I, I think I'm fifth, fifth generation HBCU, but I'm the first really to buck in that line from uh, the illustrious Prairie View A&M University in Prairie View, Texas. So I, I tip my hat to all HBCUs. I, I do have uh, sort of pension for my own, but uh, I respect the opportunities that it creates for, uh, for just advancement. Um, mm -hmm. I think the one part we focus so much on, on economics, mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, school can be used to improve one's you know, economic position or economic mm -hmm. life. Uh, but I think it, it does so much more for you know us as individuals, as a culture, as a as a collective identity. Uh, but for me, it was you know a no brainer. I was one of those kids who was sort of indoctrinated with education. But I did have this option, um, you know, that sort of came to me with my generation um, as to you know whether you to attend an HBCU or a predominantly white institution. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a former professor who says you know historically white institution um, and. And, you know, I think that delineation is key uh, because when you dig into that history, you understand why the universities look the way they look today. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I, I had the options. Um, I had, you know, a first cousin um, just, you know, immediately above me in terms of uh, age who made a college decision and it was between an HBCU and an Ivy League. Mm -hmm. um, so when I, you know, graduated high school, I was uh, fortunate enough that my uh, academic curricular academic credentials and extracurriculars afforded me the opportunity and the option to look between Ivy League and uh, HBCU. Um, you know, to be frank and honest, I had ruled out, you know, a lot of the um, big state schools uh, mm -hmm. because a god brother of mine had played football um, at a school I don't want to name just uh, for the sake of their, you know, reputation. But he said, if you're not playing sports here, I don't sense that they care about you as a black man. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, took that uh, to heart and, and sort of use that as a critical lens in which I was evaluating institutions. Uh, so really it came down to, uh, you know, a particular Ivy League school um, and my HBCU. And uh, I, like many in, in my generation, um, you know, visited the campuses and said, wow, this place has all these bells and whistles and, mm -hmm. and telescopes that can look at, at you know, Jupiter. Um, and wow, this is, this is amazing. Look at, look at all these resources. And, um, and then I had, you know, HBCU and it's, you know, it's like, wow, it's, it doesn't have those resources. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I tell people this all the time, particularly young people who don't understand the history of inequity, uh, in America and why things, you know, appear the way that they are today, oftentimes, mm -hmm. but there's some appreciation for intangibles that you have to have about HBCUs mm -hmm. that if you try and compare tangible to tangible you know, some HBCUs may not match up to the historically white institutions mm -hmm. in the area of their region. Uh, but it's that appreciation for those intangibles that I think 
um, you know, compelled me in a sense um, mm -hmm. and, and really, you know, pressed upon me in my senior year to decide, hey, for these four years of my life, this is where I want to spend, um, you know, these formative years of my development. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, many of us think that, you know, this decision is, is you know, make or break. Um, and and I, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves because at 18, 19, 20, 21, we're still growing and learning to yeah. know ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, better understanding of uh, who we are and, you know, the impact that we want to make. Um, and I think there's no better place uh, than historically Black college and university for that sort of shaping and molding mm -hmm. uh, for that introspective self-discovery process. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for me, uh, I say there was no better institution than Howard University. Mm -hmm. That's not to say Howard University is a perfect school. That's not to say that Howard University is a school for everyone. But from my experiences and my upbringing, I knew that I needed to be in an urban environment. Mm -hmm. I knew that I needed to be in a space where I had proximity uh, to, you know, politics, mm -hmm. or that was just me. Um, and, and, you know, I, I laughed to, to family and say that had I gone to a school like Prairie View, uh, which is, you know, 45 minutes northwest or 45 miles northwest of Houston, I might have failed out because I would have spent all my time in Houston and not on campus. Mm. Uh, that was just some of the dynamics that, you know, I think, um, or, you know, each university is unique in that way. Definitely. Uh, I, sort of five factor filter. Uh, mm -hmm. I was that kid in high school. There were five things I was looking for um, in my undergrad experience, but you know, Howard University satisfied those five things. Um, and I think, you know, you know, I share them with, with young people all the time, but I really think it's that sort of, you know, critical, uh, you know, conversation with oneself, mm -hmm. uh, what institution is best for them uh, so that they can reach their goals to maximize the impact that they have upon society. Interesting. And, you know, that, you know, I definitely agree with you the importance of HBCU, but um, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that, right? Like, um, like um, similar to where you currently live, I grew up in the Midwest, right? I, I am a proud um, Minnesotan or whatever they, we call ourselves nowadays. So but, proud, don't even know what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember it was my junior year when I first heard about these magical places called HBCUs, right? Coming from the Midwest, like most most HBCUs are either in the South or um, in the Northeast, and you have uh, two in um, in the Midwest in Kansas and Missouri. And so, hold on, now, hold on, now, hold on. Now. We got Kentucky State. We got two I mean, in Ohio. I mean, we, again, first, State. You, you're right. But when I say Northeast, I even though Ohio is technically the Midwest, I kind of gather all of them down there and so okay. <laughs> west i'll say this west of minnesota we don't have any hbcus right. is that a fair a fair assessment yeah that's that's right that's right so i remember my assistant um principal um mr Rowe, told me about this magical place called fam you and he was like willie boy i couldn't go no hbcu boy because i would have flunked out all the women out there and so um you know me being a young rambunctious kid, that's what really first caught my eye, but actually learning more about these places was so intriguing. And unfortunately, I didn't, I wasn't able to go straight into an HBCU straight out of uh, high school, but after a year at um, a state school, which I won't mention because uh, of other reasons, I was able to transfer to North Carolina Central University and that experience truly changed my life, right? You know, being able to be on a campus where the chancellor looks like me, being able to be in classes where I'm taught by PhDs and EDDs that look like me, being able to be in a place where Black excellence is personified was so monumental to my upbringing, was so monumental to my critical thinking, and so monumental to informing who I was as a person. So what about your Howard experience informed who you are today? Yeah, I, I, and I, I want to start, you know, even where you're saying with this, this Midwestern similarities and commonalities that we have. I think one of the things that's unique when you uh, haven't had generations and generations of Black folk living in a place, because mm -hmm. we know the, the migration patterns that brought many of us to the Midwest. Everyone's story is unique, mm -hmm. but we haven't cemented here um, as we have in other regions of America for so long that it, you know, th there's some interesting dynamics at play. Um, you know, having some familiarity with Minneapolis, there's some similarities 
uh, to Indianapolis as well, where I would say largely that we do not have um, we do not have an inclusive culture in our community, in our society. Mm. Um, it's one of these places where I think we promote assimilation over acculturation, mm. where there is a normative path um, and then there are normative behaviors along that path, normative um, you know, customs uh, and there are normal cultural norms on that path that one can sort of take on, exemplify to mm. weather themselves and insulate themselves for success in, within that standard. Mm-hmm. And I say that to say that, unfortunately, um, the uplift and embrace of the beauty of Black culture is not always uh, prioritized in some of these Midwestern places that haven't had generations and generations mm-hmm. of Black folk. Uh, because oftentimes we've done what we've had to do as a people to survive, to survive uh, you know, the inequities, to survive the atrocities, to survive just the conditions. Mm-hmm. And in that, we have developed an ideology that oftentimes uh, has bred inferiority complexes towards our own blackness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's some of these places, and you think back to even your upbringing, you know, the, the, the notions of, um, you know, white is right, the white man's ice is colder. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes that forms from the inverse where we see concentrated poverty or concentrated, um, you know, uh, disinvestment, and then create some analog with, um, you know, the complexion or, uh, the, the you know, culture of a people and the circumstances that those people have found themselves in. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we then develop these sort of negative notions or these uh, you know, ideals, ideals of blackness that aren't necessarily true mm-hmm. because we have only seen such a limited perspective from these isolated markets and environments that we've grown up in in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So this HBCU experience opens the eyes for many young people to this sort of um, you know, bevy of, of Black excellence, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us grew up with a dearth of Black professionals mm-hmm. in our fields. It is not as common in, you know, Midwestern markets to have Black pediatricians, to have Black, you know, uh, dentists, to have Black, uh, you know, ophthalmologists, simply because of the numbers game. You know, it's not as prevalent as it is in, you know, some of the cities on the East Coast or some of the cities that have had uh, nearby universities and access to higher education for Black folks for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. So with that, how do we then break ourselves from that limiting notion of what Black can be and what Blackness is Mm -hmm. and expand, you know, our our worldview, our purview to then actualize that success for ourselves. So we don't see it, it's hard for us to dream to be it Mm -hmm. if we don't, because we've never known it and we can't conceptualize what we can't even imagine. So Mm -hmm. that's where I think, you know, we you know, lift the veil over, you know, that's over the eyes of so many folks that have, you know, sort of accepted certain realities for Black folk. Mm-hmm. And those realities, you know, are oftentimes perpetuated by the media or perpetuated by systemic injustices and cycles and systems that we grow up on, have such a hard time shaking that we've accepted this is our reality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that sort of magical sense mm-hmm. that, you know, your teacher, you know, Mr. Rogue talked about years ago was being able to live outside of that sort of norm and you know dream for whatever. So yes, you can dream for being a college uh, president because you've seen a college president and can mm-hmm. imagine yourself in that role. Mm-hmm. But if you've never seen anyone that looked like you, it takes a certain level of, you know, sort of just um, strength and fortitude to mm-hmm. dream for that which you've never even seen or hardly even imagined. Mm-hmm. But when it becomes real to you and practical to you, that sort of hurdle in your mind becomes surmountable rather than being insurmountable, becomes mm-hmm. the norm rather than being an exception. And that's that sort of confidence building that you see take place on HBCUs. It's not to say that it's for everyone, mm-hmm. but you know, I think it is you know, well worth the, the investment uh, for many people to make uh, to change that sort of perspective and that worldview um, and to have a new reality uh, for what blackness can be and what blackness is in America. Mm. And I think that's, that's, that's really interesting too. And like, as you were thinking, I was thinking about, you know, some of the most impactful black men or even black women that I've come across and talking about Mr. Rowe, uh, one thing that you both share, uh, although I feel like I made a mistake, y'all are you going? Uh, you going? of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Ooh. Incorporated. Ooh. That, that um, <laughs> and so as I think about the monumental, uh, you know, figures within the black community, 
one one of the, one of the commonalities that they share are being members of these uh fraternities and sororities myself i'm a member of alpha phi alpha you're a member of uh kappa alpha psi how impactful has your fraternity or your membership within this organization been in not only your life but life of the people that uh, you surround yourself around so i was spoiled mm -hmm. uh, i was spoiled in a sense because kappa alpha psi fraternity incorporated was founded on the campus of <laughs> indiana university in bloomington indiana just right down the road uh, my school superintendent, when I graduated high school, the gentleman that handed me my diploma mm -hmm. was a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the richest black man and civic champion in Indianapolis, Indiana, that I grew up, you know, aspiring to be and seeing as, you know, just this, you know, giant among men, mm -hmm. member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, you know, many of the civic leaders, because of course, you know, there's that, you know, natural, uh, mm -hmm. The natural path, you know, folks, you know, staying around where they might have attended school for yeah. us being a chapter, you know, many of our founders were, you know, employed, born, raised in Indianapolis, you know, lived in Indianapolis. There was a, a strong influence there. But many of the community leaders that I saw, folks making an impact, folks moving and shaking, wheeling and dealing and making, you know, those power moves in Indianapolis mm -hmm. were also Kappa Alpha Psi. Uh, so it's not necessarily a, a knock at any other, you know, fraternity, but of course, there are certain communities and certain you know, uh, regions that have you know, predominance of members that are doing great things. Uh, so that was that, that sort of influence upon me. Mm. I think, you know, had this conversation about fraternities. Uh, I, I think, you know, all of them are great. All of mm -hmm. them that, you know, positive ideals and the positive uplift of black men, I'm in support and full support. Um, I think, uh, you know, Kappa Alpha Psi is, is unique mm -hmm. uh, and it's, you know, in its mission. Uh, and his motto, achievement in every field of human endeavor. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that is, uh, and just there are certain things within our constitution and our, and, um, you know, the, the composition of our organization that are unique and different from other fraternities, but we base it on what each member has done and what they are doing and how mm. they are society and under that guise of achievement, you know, and even the selection of our members, we have no honorary members. There is no, you know, just bestowing it upon somebody, uh, you know, the, the membership. It is, you know, on the individual. I um, mean, when you get back into the history and the story of some of these organizations, we were born, um, and it's not to cast aspersion upon any other fraternity, but we were born because, you know, two gentlemen said, hey, I don't want to be, you know, a member of this social club on mm -hmm. the basis of who my father was. Mm -hmm. I want to be a member of this social club on the basis of, you know, where I fit in and the socioeconomic lot of blackness. Mm -hmm. I want to be a member of an organization or a fraternity of other men on the basis of what I personally have accomplished or am accomplishing in this life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, kind of unique uh, because we are the, the only you know, fraternity that doesn't take on honorary members. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is sort of in the essence and DNA of our fraternity. It gets back to um, even before our founding on the campus of Indiana University in 1911, uh, some of the origins and history that we have at Howard University in 1910, uh, because two of our founders there were actually enrolled as students at Howard University before transferring to Indiana University, where they then went on and founded um, this illustrious fraternity. So, you know, we can go on, you know, just in the, in the jocular sense, back and forth. I think all of the organizations are great. Um, and, and, you know, even the, the time we have this conversation is timely because, uh, one of the, my greatest mentors and, and I guess, you know, just this sort of inspirational figure in my life mm -hmm. uh, who recently passed away earlier this week, uh, Vernon Jordan. He was, you know, gave a compelling case uh, for, for membership in his fraternity, um, Omega Psi Phi. Uh, I remember <laughs> I was at an event for Howard University. It was he, uh, it was Vernon Jordan, Earl Graves, uh, and, and another uh, member of uh, the trustee board of Howard mm -hmm. University, putting the full court press on. <laughs> but, you know, I said, I saw that light early. I saw the Kappa Alpha Psi light um, in my early days. I was a member of Kappa League in high school. So, mm. um, room know, dealt for it, huh? You know, we were training for leadership. You know, that's that <laughs> movie. Uh, so, you know, but I, I think, you know, like I said, all these organizations are great. Find the one that fits, uh, fits you know, you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just the, the cultures are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
hey, everybody can't be a Kappa no way. So they gotta have they gotta have other fraternity options. I mean, you know, I can say the same thing about Alpha, but you know, that's neither here nor there. And so one thing I one thing I really truly admire about you, you don't just you don't take on a job just for the money or for the prestige of it. You you take on positions that have impact or create some form of impact. And so currently um, you serve as the executive director of the Kennedy King Center. So tell us a little bit about what, what exactly is the Kennedy King Center and what initiatives are you all working on um, at the moment? Yeah, the Kennedy King Memorial Initiative is a nonprofit organization based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, that builds upon the historical legacy of April 4th, 1968. Um, and we build upon the legacy of two giants of men, Senator Robert Francis Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, what uh, they stood for um, and, and how they went about living their lives and what they preached and espoused. Mm -hmm. We hark upon that in 2021 uh, to eliminate division and injustice in society. Mm -hmm. the, the story of Kennedy and King um, in, in, in Indianapolis, there's an inextricable link that the city has to this story that you know, not everyone knows because it's not in our textbook. But mm -hmm. as we know, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, gave his I have a drink, I'm sorry, his I've been to the mountaintop speech, mm -hmm. uh, April 3rd, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, while he was there uh, in support of the sanitation workers um, and, and their sort of economic strike. Um, but at 6.01 p.m. on April 4th, 1968, uh, he was struck and killed with by an assassin's bullet on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Mm. At the same time, uh, Bobby Kennedy was uh, campaigning for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States. So on April 4th, he began his day at a campaign rally uh, at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Then he traveled from there to Ball State University. Uh, and then he was you know, headed from Ball State University to Indianapolis, Indiana to have a campaign rally. Mm -hmm. uh, it was you know, ironic almost in the sense that there was a black student at Ball State University you know, raised his hand and said, you know, you, you seem to preach a lot of, you know, that there should be a lot of faith and a lot of trust in white people. Uh, don't you think that's, you know, a, a bit much in these times? And this is 1968, the, you know, Vietnam War was going strong. Um, you know, we had uh, the civil rights movement um, at its height. Um, and this guy said, you know, no, I don't think it's, it's, it's too much because, you know, they're good white people, just as they're good black people. Uh, they're bad white people, just as they're bad black people. And he said this, you know, at Ball State University. Um, as he leaves the stage, Ball State University, headed to the car to head to the airport from Muncie, Indiana to fly to Indianapolis, he hears that Dr. King has been shot, not killed, but shot. Mm. Lands in Indianapolis uh, just, you know, a few minutes later, and then he's informed that Dr. King has been killed. Mm. That time, uh, the mayor of Indianapolis, who then went on to become known as Senator Richard Luger, uh, but the mayor, he was at that time, said, you know, please do not speak. Do not speak because other cities around America had already begun to erupt into mm. um, riots and protests and, and unrest. So the mayor said, do not speak. And he said, I must. I must go. Um, the assistant police chief at that time uh, said that he would be safe to sleep in these streets of 17th and Broadway, where uh, he later came to speak he'd be able to sleep there safely with his family because that was the respect that this community had. Now, 17th and Broadway was a historically African-American community. Mm. You have Senator Kennedy going out to this, you know, park to give a campaign speech. And you know the excitement, uh, you know, sitting in, you know, outside for hours waiting for, you know, a campaign mm -hmm. speech, whether it was for, you know, Barack Obama or, uh, you know, or anybody else that, you know, mm -hmm. we saw excited to be out there, you know, and some of that same excitement existed in 1968 for a Kennedy, you know, we as a community embraced and rallied around John F. Kennedy. And this was what we hoped was the second coming uh, in his brother, Bobby Kennedy. So on the back of a flatbed truck, he actually takes the prepared remarks that he had written and throws them out. And he gets up here in a speech that has gone down in, in, in the canon as one of the greatest speeches in American history. And he, the first thing he says, do they know? Do they know about Dr. King? Because this is before Twitter, before Instagram. So folks have been sitting out here for hours and did not know. Mm. There you know, was like a radio announcement that went out to say King had been killed. So he actually said, can you please lower the signs? Can you please lower the signs? Because people are out here, Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And he says, I have some, some very you know tragic news for you. And then he lets Black Indianapolis know of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King, mm. April 4th, 1968. 
uh, and it, it was tough, you know, what is now known as this sort of ripple of hope because it sort of went back through the crowd and folks were, you know, what did he say? What did he say? And they hear it and they, you know, of course, just have this overwhelming grief. But the words that he then, you know, gave in his speech were words of compassion, of love, mm -hmm. of wisdom, of understanding, of empathy for those who still seek justice in this country. Mm -hmm. It was the first time, almost five years later, that he had ever spoken publicly about the death of his own brother in 1963, he's wearing his brother's peacoat mm. on the back of a flatbed truck. And he speaks of, of words of inspiration that he drew from the Greeks and Greek poetry to this less educated African-American community. It spoke to the type of man that he was. Mm -hmm. that he his upper Northeast boarding school prep education and Ivy League education and not change it, not you know, um, pander, not water it down for the black community. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah. I found inspiration from you know, these same Greek poets that I share with you. Um, and, you know, with that speech, uh, uh, it is credited as being one of the pieces. And I say one just to make sure that we don't put out this white savior narrative. But there were other leaders, there were other clergymen, there were other activists who came together. And, and it goes down in history that Indianapolis is one of the largest cities to not erupt into protest and violence uh, after uh, the death of, uh, of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, because it's become you know, known around the nation. You know, I, I went to school in DC and, and, and in 2001, when I arrived at Howard University, you could still walk down U Street and see char marks from buildings that were set afire in 1968. Mm. It's that spirit that, you know, that sort of grief-filled activism that the Kennedy King Memorial Initiative keeps alive these ideals of King and Kennedy mm. to say, hey, so there are gonna be some tough times. There's gonna be some, some tragic moments, but how do we then come together how do we then have these courageous conversations, these bold dialogues that mm -hmm. then try, you know, bring about purposeful action mm -hmm. to eliminate division and injustice in society? So, you know, part of being the executive director, I had the opportunity and good fortune to, you know, take on that, um, you know, the strategic plan mm -hmm. and to put my thumbprint on it uh, myself because I get frustrated when we take Dr. King and, and, and treat him like the elf on the shelf. Mm. We bring him out between his birthday at the end of January in the month of February and say, hey, this is Dr. King. As though he wouldn't have a message that was still relevant 12 mm -hmm. months out of the year. As though if he was still living almost 53 years after his death, mm -hmm. that he would still, you know, not have a message for economic justice. He wouldn't have a message, uh, you know, for environmental justice. So I mm -hmm. said, no, we're going to update this in 2021. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about gender, you know, inequities. We're going to talk about, um, you know, uh, of course, race-based inequities, but let's talk about food insecurity. Let's talk about housing insecurity. Let's talk about um, you know, the instability uh, of economics and, and the disinvestment that's occurred in communities uh, of color for, for generations. Mm -hmm. And how can we then provide redress to these communities? Um, you know, we had an unfortunate incident uh, that an African-American gentleman died at the hands of the police last summer. Mm -hmm. And we had protests that went on in the city. Uh, some of those protests uh, turned less than peaceful uh, and, and, you know, tore up buildings in downtown Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. but the same redress that we offer to the corporate community, the same way that we ran with full expediency to, you know, repair downtown Indianapolis. I expect that and I hope for that, that we run to repair and provide redress for communities that have been, you know, torn apart from disinvestment for generations. Mm -hmm. You know, people are growing up in a pressure cooker and then we sit back and wonder why, you know, they act the way that they do as yeah. though it's foreign to us. No. They're making very rational decisions based on the cards that they've been dealt. Mm -hmm. If you were dealt a hand, you know, of a, of a you know, unsuited, you know, uh, you know, hand in poker, yeah, it's going to be tough to win when you're going against a guy who has a full house, and that's yeah. what he was born into. You know, so when you have an unsuited two seven and you're trying to do something with that, what am I supposed to do when a, a guy has a royal flush and he didn't do anything to to earn that other than simply being born into that? And those are the kind of that we've created for folks and then we sit back and wonder why they do things that seem to be you know contrary to what we would want them to do in society mm -hmm. why have we invested in them in ways that seem contrary to how we invest in other communities in society and those are sort of the inequities that that we seek to call out and we seek to provide redress to so you know that is my my day job as the executive director uh, we have programming that, that works to support that uh, we have a just courageous conversation series that brings together you know, different communities to talk about, not just, you know, race-based issues. And yes, I subscribe to critical race theory uh, and can think of myself as a, as a race man 
um, in, in the sense that Asada Shakur talked about. It. So I, I'm right there with it. But let's talk about housing injustices, and then we can explore how you know some of those breaks and some of those fault lines break mm -hmm. on the breaks. But let's let's talk about you know economic opportunity. Let's talk about lending. Let's talk about the role of uh, you know the community reinvestment act or opportunity zones and how some of those dollars don't find themselves in our community. Because yes, we've gotten past this place where we say a rising tide lifts all boats, but sometimes a rising tide sinks folks who are out there in the water with just a dinghy. And we have to realize that in many of our cities, we see a negative beta mm -hmm. that as you know, there's progress in certain communities and certain neighborhoods with redevelopment or mm -hmm. gentrification. Folks are drowning by those waves that are created mm -hmm. in communities and historically disinvested. The, the infrastructure. The roads are worse. The schools are worse. How do we repair those in an equitable sense? Not equality anymore. We've, we've been long past that. And since America didn't listen to our cries for equality, now we're talking about equity because it may not be equal because it hasn't been equal before. So those are some of the things that we talk about and we advance with the Kennedy King Memorial Initiative. Um, you know, we have outstanding partnership right now with Pacer Sports and Entertainment. Um, whereas, you know, sort of growing uh, the brand and the awareness, Indianapolis, is second only to Washington, D.C. and the number of monuments and memorials to war. Mm. Why is we have a landmark for peace? In 2018, President Trump declared it the National Landmark for Peace Memorial. Mm. And now we're in pursuit of full unit status with the National Park Service so that it will be a national park. This, the space where Senator Robert Kennedy stood April 4th, 1968 will be a national park, mm. uh, the second national park in the state of Indiana commemorating you know, his speech there, mm -hmm. but also just legacy uh, of him and Dr. King and what they've lived for, what they've stood for, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, sort of what I do on a daily basis. Interesting. And you, you said something that has been ringing in my mind since, uh, since you, you stated it. You stated that at that conversation with uh, Bobby Kennedy, that student got up and asked, why should Black people trust white people? And with everything that has transpired in the last um, 18 months, Right. And so we're talking about from December of last year to March of this year, or even even going further back, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same issues that were happening in the 1960s in the height of the civil rights era. We're seeing a lot of the same inequalities with this past election. Literally today, there uh, were talks about a second attempt at insurrection at the White House because you have this faction of people that believe that Donald Trump truly is the president. And I don't want to get too much into politics, but I guess my question for you is, you know, why, like, it seems as far as we've come as a nation, we still, we still have a long ways to go. So what are your thoughts on how us as a people can um, not only better our situations, but work with other races or work with other um factions to create some ideology of what the american dream is or do you believe that's not really a real thing uh the american dream is a dream <laughs> so it, it it is real in that sense is it a, an attainable dream for everyone that's the thing thing we need to challenge um you know are we providing everyone the infrastructure of opportunity to truly pursue and attain the american dream mm -hmm. i think that is you know our, our question that we grapple with and that we haven't done the best if we're honest with ourselves in the history of this country. Um, should we remain hopeful? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, because uh, when you lose hope, that's when things you know, go haywire. You mm. know, the corner of West you know, wrote a book, Hope on the Tightrope. It is uh, you know, just a, a harrowing feat oftentimes to remain hopeful in the face of the inequity that we experience. Now, mm. I can't tell you to be optimistic because optimism or pessimism is based on something that's happened before and the likeliness or you know, preponderance of evidence for you to believe that it should happen again. Mm. And as history, you know that things haven't you know, happened in the past for us mm. to believe that they're gonna change in the future without some outside force. Mm. So not to go into the science realm, but we know as Newton told us that an object at rest remains at rest an object in motion remains in motion unless acted upon by outside force. Mm -hmm. So you know, the inequities that we see, this status quo, we can expect it to continue unless there is an outside force. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say this. I have not seen in my 37 years of life and my study of history, the broad display of empathy that we witnessed in 2020 and we've seen somewhat in 2021. 
Mm -hmm. I have a reason as to why I think that is the case, you know, because, you know, we were in a landscape of a global pandemic. We all felt our vulnerability in a new way. We felt our humanity and our humanness more because this disease has been no respecter of persons or socioeconomic uh, in that sense. So we were all more in touch with our, you know, frailty in a sense. Mm -hmm. Witness, you know, black life being replayed time and time again on TV. You can't help but to feel something. And we saw mm -hmm. sort of an outpouring of empathy, particularly from the corporate community. And I know here in Indianapolis, you know, I participated um, with the Indy Day of Solidarity and actually hosted it uh, at the Kennedy King Memorial Initiative. But we had two corporate champions that together on that day announced $75 million mm. worth of towards racial justice uh, in, here in Indianapolis. Mm. Two corporate, $75 million. You can look back as long as you want to and you won't find the outpouring that we've seen from the corporate community. But now it's incumbent upon us to take that moment and not let it die as a moment, but turn it into a movement. Mm. So I remain hopeful, not necessarily optimistic, but hopeful. And then, you know, as we talk about it, and you said, you know, yes, is this just an American dream where all of us are, you know, sort of set uh, in this, um, you know, sort of arena of sorts when you mm -hmm. get back to, you know, the gladiators and, you know, you have folks in an arena and fighting it out. I go back to uh, a professor um, at, at Howard University, Dr. Greg Carr, and he said, America is a constant culture war of groups fighting and, 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 and just in war with one another to avoid last place. Mm. And that's, that's really what we're in. You know, and you see these you know, minority groups and these factions forming, pushing against each other. Mm -hmm. But all they're trying to do is avoid being last in this race. Mm. And, and, and I think we have to somehow change that narrative. I tell people all the time that you know, again, going back to science, equal and opposite reaction. If I push upon you, you push back upon me with the same force that I push upon you. And what sort of progress or motion is made? None. We cancel each other out. But if I then invest in you, if I then support you, as you rise, you lift me up. Mm. And that's the mentality that we sort of, you know, have to develop and have to have. And I completely understand. You know, I did. Uh, I was in the streets doing work in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, I would go in jails and, and, and prisons and teach and, and, you know, education and GED classes to dropouts and inmates. I understand the factions that exist between the brown and black community. I understand the historical origins and the implications of that today. Mm -hmm. Some of these things is, is not some, you know, magic wand or, you know, panacea that's going to just occur. And, and we all have this kumbaya moment. But if we have to you know, sit down and get our leaders to come together and understand the commonalities of some of our struggles. Mm -hmm. Had that breakdown even within the Black community after the Civil Rights Movement, some folks were able to move into communities that had once been off limits to them. And once they were able to move into those communities and navigate those spaces, yeah, they didn't feel that commonality in the struggle with those who were still left in the ghettos that they weren't able to, you know, transcend. Mm -hmm. We have the commonality of our struggle within ourselves in our own community across socioeconomic lines and divides and this sort of education and social class that we develop for ourselves. But we also have to see the commonality in other communities and other cultures. Mm -hmm. And that's not gonna occur until we reach out to one another and get to know each other. Mm. Dr. said, we fear each other because we don't know each other. Mm. And so we break down some of those artificial barriers and divisions that we've allowed to divide us as people where we really get to develop those relationships and those meaningful bonds of understanding to realize, hey, not only are we fighting, you know, oftentimes the same principalities and forces of darkness and evil, I'm pulling that from Ephesians because we battle not with people and we wrestle not with man. Mm -hmm. But we also have, we need each other to bring some of the resources to the table mm -hmm. to be you know, collective in our impact uh, in that fight. Mm. That's powerful. Ooh, buddy, I just, I felt chills. Well, we are uh, coming up at the top of the hour, but uh, before we leave, you know, um, on Voices of Black Folk, I, you know, I love to end on a lighter note. And so I'm going to be a little bit selfish here. I'm going to take uh, the liberty because this is my show and just ask, you know, as, as you know, uh, my beautiful partner just gave birth to our son, Ashton Legend. And as a father of two, as a husband, what advice do you have for a new father and somebody on creating balance, not only for your children, but also for your partner? 
Well, I will say this, the, the, the first thing, uh, marry somebody smarter than you. Uh, that's that's what I did. That's what I did. Uh, mm -hmm. My wife, Dr. Amanda Washington Lockett, uh, is a brilliant woman. Um, I think, you know, when you find uh, someone who can help you, um, you know, along the way, crystallize the dreams that you have for yourself, mm -hmm. uh, that can help you, um, you know, just, you know, manifest, you know, the reality that you want for your children, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. makes it all the, the more easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's fun along the way when you find somebody to share all of this with. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing that I would say. Uh, one of the, my, my childhood pastor actually said the best thing a father can do for their child is to love that child's mother mm. and model that. Um, and, and, you know, just that sort of unconditional love that, that you show uh, to, you know, the mother of your child mm -hmm. uh, passes down to that, that child, whether, you know, we both have, you know, our firstborn or both sons, mm -hmm. um, how we, you know, sort of, uh, impress that upon them, uh, the importance uh, and the regard that, that they should have, you know, for, um, you know, women, um, that they should have for brilliant Black women, mm -hmm. um, they should have for their beautiful mothers. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I think, um, you know, is first and foremost uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but just, you know, I think one of the things that I've tried to, to do, um, and it's not necessarily me harking upon being a capital. Uh, and I've laughed and joked with you. I said, I don't actually care you know, what fraternity or if my son chooses to pledge a fraternity, but to promote achievement in every field of human endeavor. Mm -hmm. Because I think one thing that we do is oftentimes accept society's limitations mm -hmm. for ourselves and then begin to internalize that and sometimes un unknowingly pass that on to future generations. Mm -hmm. Then we limit you know, our children from pursuing interests talents and you know opportunities in certain spaces mm -hmm. uh, because you know we might not have a familiarity ourselves or we might have accepted some condition that we weren't even aware of mm -hmm. so you know promote and push you know greatness in all fields um you know my son we and, and you might remember seeing it uh in his first nursery uh you know had his name spelled out in varsity letters mm -hmm. uh but varsity letters in the corner of the letter there was a different discipline or field so one had the acting mask the one had an art you know easel and, and mm. canvas of art uh, another one had you know the uh the scales of justice another one had you know the, the wings of victory in terms of athletic achievement mm -hmm. one had the, you know the science emblem um and you know all of those just to you know, expose and promote greatness and excellence in all of these various fields. Uh, mm -hmm. So then put any limitations, uh, mm -hmm. you know, on that, that would be, you know, one of the, uh, the, the first thing. Uh, but teaching uh, a sort of sense of self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we have been afforded opportunities um, to, um, to expose our children to all walks of life mm -hmm. uh, and, and all, uh, opportunities that this country and the world might present. Hmm. We are not immune from racism. We are not immune from sexism. We are not immune from other bigotry and prejudice. And our mm -hmm. children, unfortunately, will probably not be immune from any of those either. But if we build up a sense of self within them, that they are more than equipped to navigate any space, that they are more than prepared for any environment, that they are more than um, adequate to sit at any table. Mm. That's what's going to prepare them for some of these unforeseen challenges that we may not be able to protect or insulate them from when they are not in our company. Mm. Of course, mm. you know, we know that we're going to you know, ward off any things that may come on when we're there. But what do we do when, when you know, they're not there and they're in a school classroom and they're having a debate and one of their less educated or less informed classmates makes a remark, uh, you know, about the, the Africans' existence in America that isn't 100% true or accurate. Mm. Our son or our, my daughter going to have the courage of their convictions to stand up and say, I know that's not right, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'm actually going to bring you the resources to educate you because I don't want you to be ignorant or limit me or anyone that looks like me with your ignorance. Mm. That's the sort of confidence because, you know, some folks crumble in it. 
And, and I want my child to have that confidence that travels. Mm. Uh, I want them to, to feel, you know, comfortable and, and at home on the campus of an HBCU or comfortable at home on the campus of a historically white institution or comfortably at home of a Hispanic serving institution, comfortable at home and folks that have no education at all. Mm. And it's really how do we build them up to have that sense of confidence, that sense of self, that sense of self-esteem, that pride that, you know, I'm God's child. I'm black. I'm beautiful. I'm bold. I'm blessed. And I'm free. And that's what, you know, I really want to impress upon, you know, you as a father. Uh, that's, you know, what I try and, you know, instill within, you know, my son. Uh, and, and I definitely, you know, think it's, it's even, you know, more so uh, important that we, you know, instill that within daughters, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. this country does the least to protect black women. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, as a father, um, you know, we have to, you know, be there uh, to protect them, uh, our black daughters, our black wives, and we have to train sons that, you know, know that they must do the same. Mm. Uh, it's not that they are, you know, you know feeble and adequate or weak, uh, but, you know, as a community, you know, we have to realize that they are a, a prized possession mm -hmm. and treat them mm -hmm. as such. So, those are, you know, just some of the, the, the early lessons that, you know, I would pass on. And I think it's just, there's one last point and, and I leave it to my son, but I also leave it to, you know, your, your viewers and subscribers uh, is this, it's, it's less about, um, you know, you know, we ask kids all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. But we really need to get away from that. It's not about what you want to be. It's about what impact do you want to make mm. and what do you want to leave? So, you know, to a grown man now, it's about what legacy do you want to leave? Uh, to somebody who's still, you know, pursuing the highest heights, it's about what impact do you want to make? I'm not in this position, you know, for me to wear this, you know, tailored suit uh, and, and have a, a pocket square. That's not why I'm in the position that I'm in. I'm in the position to create opportunities for someone else, to make the plane easier for somebody who's coming behind me, to create, you know, you know, open doors for my son to walk through, my daughter to have tables that she can sit at that I couldn't say that, that my wife couldn't say that. That's why I do what I do. That's why we do in this collective sense of community. So let's not get caught up in the titles and, and you know who I think I am, but really what impact am I having upon making this experience that we have here better for the next generation or the next brother that looks like me or the next sister that looks like you know, uh, you know, my wife or my daughter. So, you know, really just kind of changing that paradigm uh, so that we're all used up at the end of our journey, uh, you know, on this, you know, land with our two feet on the ground. Definitely. Well, brother, thank you so much for that. And for all of you at home, you know, I hope you got as much out of this as I did. And thanks again for watching Voices of Black Folk. As you know, this is a show that we not only uh, highlight, you know, Black people within various fields doing amazing things, but we spotlight greatness. And um, for that, Daryl, we thank you. And make sure you tune, subscribe, and watch Voices of Black Folk. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and really took something from it. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe, like, and share this episode. Our goal on this podcast is to highlight and give a voice to the Black community by bringing phenomenal individuals who are creating and charting paths toward greatness. And through your support, we can continue to change lives. Thanks again. And don't miss the next episode of the Voices of Black Folk podcast. I'm your host, Will Anyu.